Dr. Janice Smith, based upon what you've been teaching and writing about for over a decade on sexual ethics, bioethics, and natural law, you've obviously observed, or you may have deserved a diminishing sense of sacred. I don't want to uh, presume anything, but what have you noticed in regards to the sense of the sacred in the world and in the church? Well, it, that's a big, big question and a wonderful question. Um, young people have been um, raised in a world uh, where, as you say, the sacred has been extremely diminished. If, if only to look at the difference between the... I, I live in uh, near Detroit, uh, and it has many beautiful old churches. They're just staggering. You walk in and it takes your breath away. Now, these were built 100 years ago. And for many people, it was the, you might say, the landscape of their mind as far as the sacred is concerned. And what do we mean by that? Something that is a lot of gold <laughs> that we're walking into. My, one of my nephews uh, went to one of these churches once, and, and he just was so overwhelmed by it. And he said, um, I don't think, I've, I think heaven's going to look like this. I mean, he just had this sense that he was in a, a different world and you had saints, uh, statues everywhere and stained glass windows and candles. And I, I gave the kids, a couple of kids, we gave them all a bunch of quarters to light candles and pray for people. And that whole sense that everything in this world is being uplifted to the next world. Right? And then, of course, you have the tabernacle and you have a sense that you're in, in a very sacred space and you be quiet, you whisper and you kneel and you genuflect. And you have a sense that this is extraordinarily different. If I can put in some good words for the traditional Latin mass, all of that is still retained. Uh, I go to a local, my local parish actually has the, the traditional Latin mass. And there's, there's generally 18 altar boys. It's unbelievable. It's one thing that just delights my heart in the extreme. They're, they're extremely well-trained. They have great precision. You know, when you go from boys that are about seven, you know, up to those in their late 20s. And they just have the greatest, they, they genuflect, they bow, they know how to move with dignity. It's just extraordinary. You know something otherworldly, supernatural is happening here. There's no doubt about it. Um, now, I grew up with that mass until um, I was about 16. And that's when they changed over to the Novus Order. And the change was really dramatic, absolutely dramatic. Um, you know, now you have altar boys with not, almost nothing to do. And they would sit on the side and elbow each other and, you know, just generally get in trouble. And, um, you know, the, the, the attire of the, you have the extraordinary ministers and some of them are wearing crocs and uh, just very informal, casual clothing. Uh, they have no sense about dignity, about how to move around uh, an altar. Uh, people are talking before mass and talking after mass. Now, is you know, there's nothing more sacred than the Eucharist. So, if we lose reverence for the Eucharist, it seems to me we're going to lose reverence for most everything else. And then, of the courts, for the churches themselves, we're not in the least bit inspiring. And in fact, I hate to say it, a very large number of them are very ugly. And you walk in and you just say, "What? People spent money for this? This one looks like a." you know, an airline hangar. Um, this one looks like a school auditorium. And this one looks like a stage uh, that some local drama club uh, has put together. And 
you just say the difference is staggering. Uh, I, I mean, I taught at the University of Dallas, and uh, we would take the stu- students, all, most students would go for a semester to Rome. So I taught for a year in Rome. And we had one girl, I'll never forget it. Every place we went, every church we went to, I eventually I'd find her sitting with her back somewhere to a wall and just weeping. And I'd say, Jen, what's wrong? And she said, I've never seen anything so beautiful in my whole life. And it was place after place. And people don't understand the effect of beauty um, for the uh, sense, of, sense of the sacred. Uh, again, if one of the, the people that I follow on um, Twitter uh, is constantly putting pictures of, of old churches and new churches <laughs> and just saying, you know, what, what's the effect of you? And why can't we produce these anymore? And it says, because we've thought we've lost a sense of that world. I mean, there are a few architects. Duncan Stroik from Notre Dame is one of them. He's built um, churches at... Um, several places. One is at Thomas Aquinas in, in California. I don't know that if he was responsible for the one in Christendom, but these churches, I, I, I visited the one in California, and I thought, if I were here for four years as a student, I think it would impact my whole life that every day or once a week I would go to Mass here and have this impressed upon me as being in a sacred space. So I, I would say that's a sign of our our loss of the sacred. It happened long before, honestly, um, the Novus Ordo and the new churches. It, it and, and I, I do want to, of course, say that the Novus Ordo can be done very reverently. Uh, it is done so in most almost every parish uh, around where I live. I can quite safely <laughs> go to the liturgies, but it's still quite different. I mean, it, when I always feel a little bit embarrassed when the time for the consecration comes in the Novus Ordo, because the priest is trying to do something very intimate in where he is consecrating the sacrament. And it's extremely sacred. I mean, what's more sacred? And you have all these eyes upon you, and you're trying to zero in and focus on this. And um, and I can't imagine his periphery isn't affected by all these people out here and different kinds of garb, different kinds of emotions, all these things, different degrees of attentiveness. I mean, I've heard from priests who, who have gone from saying the Novus Order to the um, traditional Latin Mass, uh, which one of the big changes is moving to Ad Orientum, which is uh, praying to the East. Uh, and just that sense that they are in this very sacred moment and space where it's between them and God, and they are carrying on their backs the prayers of everybody in the congregation. So we're, we're uplifting our prayers um, with him, and, and there's just no confusion that he's not praying to us, as there can be when he's facing the people, when he looks like, who's he praying to? When he's praying, when the crucifix is right there and every trajectory is is upwards, is very important. Now, that can be done at the Novus Ordo, but it's done too rare. Um, it, but that would make a huge improvement um, in the Novus Ordo Mass. And then, of course, at the traditional Latin Mass, you kneel for com- communion. Or you receive it on the tongue. You know this is something sacred. Whereas in the um, Novus Ordo, people, you know, traipse up, and a lot of them are dressed in their vacation clothes or whatever, and the sense of the sacred is simply not there. Now, 
this infiltrated the church um, uh, in a sense long before the 60s. Uh, and it infiltrated the culture, you might say, and, and more, more than anything, it infiltrated the, uh, it was a part of the philosophical world that rejected the sacred, it rejected the spiritual. It said that everything is material. There is no such thing as spirit. Everything is matter. There is no other world. There is no divine world. There is no creator that is not made of matter. It, um, the world tends to think that, that everything just sprung into being spontaneously. There was never an everlasting um, everlasting entity, an all-loving God, an all-loving God that created us, and he, he infused into each the soul of each human being into a body. And that's that's a staggering thought. Um, most people think we're because of science says that we're just a little bundle of cells. We're just a bunch of matter. Uh, and there's a huge difference, of course, why abortion is uh, so popular. People talk about the unborn child being just a clump of cells, right? just a clump of cells. And they have no idea that from the very beginning of this clump of cells existence, there's been an immortal soul that is a part of that entity. It makes it human. Human beings have immortal souls. We have spirit. We have a part of our being that's entirely spiritual. It's not a bit material. And God, only God can create a soul. So God creates each and every human soul. That's an extraordinary thing. It's worth people sitting in front of the Blessed Sacrament and just saying, you know, thank you, God, for creating me, uh, that I have an immortal soul, that you want me with you for an eternity. You made human beings so that we would be with God for an eternity. And now, let me just do a little shift here. And I, I said I'd give you a chance to chime in, so maybe I will. We'll see. Um, <laughs> uh, what, one of the things that has completely lost our sense of sacredness is in respect to, um, honestly, sexual intercourse, right? There is certainly a way in which the church, I mean, the, the church says that marriage is a sacrament. And mar the, the marital act is the act of sexual intercourse. That's how spouses, um, in a certain sense, bestow graces upon each other, right? And what is happening during the act of sexual intercourse is that spouses are, especially during the fertile time, are inviting God to create a new human soul, a new human being, right? The sperm doesn't have a soul. The egg doesn't have an immortal soul. The egg does not have an immortal soul. So where does it come from? It can only come from God. So when a new human being is conceived, the moment of conception, God is there, right? God is there in the marital act. that, um, And he takes this act as an invitation to create a new human soul. And these spouses, they should be spouses, only spouses who are engaging in sexual intercourse, are basically saying to God, we welcome this divine gift, all right, an immortal soul in our midst, that we have, we're help, we are called cooperators with God, in the co-creators with God in making a new human life. Uh, God chose it to make human life uh, through the act of sexual intercourse of a male and a female. That's an astonishing decision, all right? Um, I always like to say he made males, sorry, out of mud, and he made females out of the rib of a rational creature, right? And there on out, he made us through the, through the act of sexual intercourse of male and female. 
So if one has that vision of the sexual act, how could one possibly produce and view pornography, all right, which reduces the, se- the sexual act to just something um, grotesquely physical, as opposed to something loving, unbelievably loving, uh, loving towards your spouse saying, you know, I want to participate with you and only you in this act of creating, helping God create new human beings. This is a sacred space. This is why it doesn't go on camera. This is why it is not shown. This is something private between the husband and the wife um, and God. So now we talk about, oh, man, recreational sex. Um, and, of course, pornography. There's a, there's a few things that are more anti-sacred than pornography. They're, it's almost blasphemous. It's, it's, a, it's a complete caricature of um of uh the sacredness of human life uh, sexuality marriage it's a complete violation of what god's purpose is for sexuality so if you were to say to people who say god has a purpose for sexuality people go like what what sex sex is just for for pleasure that's what it's for that's all it's for I mean, if we decide to have a child, then we have, okay, we have a child, and that's how you can do it. But you can do it through IVF, too. You can do it all sorts of ways. And before long, we'll have little machines that can produce little human beings, and, and you don't have, you can take, you, everybody can get sterilized and just go and have as much sex as they want. Um, and there will be no sense of um, a male gives himself to a female, a female gives herself to a male, and God gives new human life. And the act of conceiving a human being should be an act between God, the husband, and the wife that creates a new baby. Dr. Smith, you had spoken earlier about how we don't just we don't know how to be around sacred space, um, particularly around an altar. You mentioned we don't know how to dress. We don't know how to walk. We don't know how to govern ourselves appropriately. We don't know how to talk in, in sacred space. Just we just don't know how to be in sacred space. But you also said that we're infused or embodied souls and should should not that inform us how to be so what's missing here oh i think that we don't really have a sense again of the sacred of the 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 eucharist and the eucharist in the tabernacle that you were i mean i've heard protestants say that they walk into a catholic church and they know something is different right there's a presence there there's a presence there that don't feel in their own churches. And of course, it, 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 again, the, the, the older churches really worked to build that presence, sense of that presence. I mean, everything was focused on the tabernacle. And you had a candle there that was lit to let you know that um, you have the, 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 what is sacred is here. And all, all, everything, your whole eye was directed towards the altar and towards the tabernacle, that these are sacred spaces. And, 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 you know, I, I'm glad I've lived long enough to, to see so, several things and can't believe I've lived long enough to see others. But I remember the, the day, basically, when I was teaching at Notre Dame and I went to the crypt, which is the, the church under the basilica, and the tabernacle was no longer um, behind the altar. Uh, of course, it should be on the altar. I think the altar should be against the wall and then the altar should be there. So you know, where did the tabernacle go? Where'd it go? And I had a sense of loss. I mean, it's like, what has happened to this space? And 
they had put her over in a, in a little nook on the side where you store chairs, right? That's where chair, extra chairs were stored. And that's where they put the tabernacle. And over time, they sort of moved the chairs and put some kneelers in and a bench and that sort of thing. But at first, and in many churches for decades, you had to work to find where the tabernacle was. It was, you know, stored somewhere else. It certainly wasn't, and a lot of time it wasn't in the, main, the nave of the, the church or the sanctuary. It was gone. It was somewhere. And so that goes to show you the mentality that existed even within the church, in a sense, that, that the sacred belongs somewhere else. And this is all about us. This is all about us gathering. But when, when you go into a, um, a church that has the tabernacle uh, in the center, on the altar, and it has all these beautiful accoutrements and furnishings that show you that this is a sacred spot, uh, I mean, you could, I mean, they they tried to they called it stripping the altars <laughs> was sort of one of the Protestant Revolution, and then in, in the 1960s we stripped the altars. We made the church look as bare as bare bones. I remember when I first went to the John Paul II Center in Washington D.C., and they had a very modern uh, chapel there that looked like a prison chapel. I mean, it was all cement. All right, there was almost nothing to let you know that this was. Um, a chapel rather than a, a, a prison cell. And you just go, where, what, what aesthetic, what sense of sacred informed putting together this, this chapel? So that sense of sacredness. And then when people, I, I mean, again, I noticed at, at the traditional Latin mass, there are many young families, large families, and it's just adorable to see the boys, little boys and little girls all dressed up all dressed up. Little, many of the little boys have suits, you know, ties, kids, you know, and, and, and even I can see that, that many of the college uh, aged men are now wearing suits to mass as you have such a nice jacket on today and a tie. And it, I mean, it generally shows respect, right? When you see someone dressed like that, you know, when you get all dressed up, you're going to something special. And you're, when you're at the other churches, I see Girls with just the, the the briefest of little shorts and um, flip flops and immodest tops, and you're saying, where do they think they're going? And whose presence? If they were, were going to meet the mayor, I hope they would dress better than that. Though in our culture, people generally don't. So one is having a sense again, what is sacred, and that we're sacred. Um, I remember one of the most powerful images I was given uh, when I went to catechism as a small child was that we're the temple of the Holy Spirit. It's right out of St. Paul. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And uh, especially when you receive the Eucharist. I mean, you now have the, I mean, Jesus is within the baptized all the time. Jesus is within us. And um, to think that when we look at other people that were looking at Jesus um, and he is there and we need to respect them uh, it, it enormously how it, it changes how we look at people. If every person is the beloved son or daughter of God, who God wants with them for an eternity, not just true of us, it's true of every single human being. And, and you know, I go into a room, I say, wow, every one of these people, like down the street, I see all these people, God wants that one, God wants that one. Um, say a little prayer for them. Say a prayer for everybody here, that they will act worthy of their status as the son and daughter of of God, and that I will treat them that way, all right? I won't look upon them with disdain or disgust, or even when they're out of sorts and 
not acting well, that I need to be an example to them. I need to calm them down and bring them around um, rather than escalate the situation. I've escalated a lot of situations, believe me. Um, I know how to do it um, without any hesitation or training. And it's very embarrassing later that you realize that, that you were a part of this nastiness that happened. And instead, usually the person that's being nasty to you has something horrible going on in their lives, uh, something really frustrating, and they're taking it out on you. And so why don't you stop it right there? You know, give them a little relief, give them a little out uh, for whatever it is that um, is distressing them. So, and then you talk about, again, go back to sexuality. I mean, men honestly trained, raised well, are raised well in accord with their best being. We all have, we all have original sin. So all of us are damaged goods and all of us have inclinations to um, sin, obviously. And sexual sin is very easy and especially it's easy for males. Uh, and, but men also have, as a natural part of their being, a sense of reverence and protectiveness towards women and children. It's very natural to males. And if, if fathers were to cultivate that in young men, we'd have a very different world. We, if every male saw himself as a protector of every female, all right, I am not a predator. I am a protector. Again, this woman is God's daughter. And this woman is the beloved of God the Father. And he does not want me in any way to disrespect this woman. I'm going to reverence her. I'm going to protect her. In a certain sense, I'm going to protect her from me. I have desires in my heart that I need to um, govern. And I need to put, learn how to put them aside and say, this is not, it's not appropriate unless, unless this woman is my wife. And even there, of course, you don't, even more so, you reverence this woman. Even more so, you put your sexual desires in service of the love that you want to show to your wife, all right? And that it is a matter of self-giving to her and an affirmation to her and to you and to you. It's one of the importance of, of monogamy. It's, I mean, to you and to you alone do I make this gift of myself. And of course, when I'm making a sexual gift of myself, a man, every person, woman and man, male and female, need to understand that, as I said earlier, when you're having sexual intercourse, especially during a fertile period, you're making an invitation to God to create a new human soul. So you want to say, um, you know that that child, that potential child, will need a lifetime of care, a lifetime of care of a father and a mother who love each other, who've made it a commitment to each other, um, who know how to work out tensions, who know how to deal with disappointment, all sorts of things, because they are committed to each other and they're committed to any children they might have. So I think men, if they've got any sense, when especially when they get married, they say, you know, this is it. This is it for me. You're for me. You're the only one. You're absolutely the only one. Now, for women, that's huge to hear, to know that, all right? He, he could have had all these women. He chose me. I remember my mother was, you know, when my, my father died, you know, and, and it just, you know, she, of course, she was very, very sad that she died. And I, you know, and often I say to widows, I, I say, you know, he chose you. And just remember that he could have had other women. Your husband was wonderful, but he chose you and you alone. And you had him for those years that nobody else had. You had him. And wasn't that a great gift from God? And so, 
you know, the grief is great, but at the same time, that grief, that, 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 that gratitude that you had this man who dedicated his life. I mean, he went to work, you know, he paid the bills, he, he um, budgeted for the household, he made plans for the household, he worked hard. And who did he do this for? Who did he do it for? He did it for you and the children. All right. So he has put laid down his life for you. And that's that's the sense of this woman is worth it. This woman is worth my working so hard. And, and, and I, I tell this to a lot of women and I, I'm just going to stick it in here. Um, men are by nature, as women are, too, but men want to serve and they want to serve women and children. It makes them extremely happy, honestly. Even little things like opening a door and pulling a chair out for a woman and going to get her something from the table. Can I get you a glass of water? There's something that makes a man happy about that. I can do this. I I can do this. And now it's a small gesture, but it's a it's a kind of reverence. It's sort of saying, you are precious to me. So I'm going to do these little things to show how precious you are. And a woman should, a wife should never criticize her husband in public, virtually never. All criticism should be done in private. In public, it should always be praise um, for how good he is. You can certainly tease, but even the teasing has to be careful. You don't want to diminish him. You always want to build your husband up in, um, in, in, in his being because he really is. He is really, you know... Men are, are just like, you know, of course they can be slovenly. Of course they can be forgetful. Of course they can be inconsiderate and selfish. Of course, all of us can be. But that's not what you focus upon in public. Privately, you know, you have a nice, sweet, little, gentle talk to say, I wish you hadn't have done this. It was made things difficult for me. Um, and then, and of course, the men have to make a woman know that she, that this is why he's doing all this, because he, he reverence her, he treasures her, and he's not going to, again, he's not going to diminish her. He's always going to support her and help her in anything that she needs help with. Um, and so there's, and it's a beautiful thing. When spouses learn how to do this, when they, and what is public, they try to bring into the private world, the same reverence um, for each other. So John Paul II, in his Theology of the Body, there's a, a very important, at the very end, everything leads up to a kind of, um, he says, piety, a kind of reverence, that you want to reverence each other. And each other is a gift. I know one man, um, he was at a time an evangelical Protestant, but he became a, a Catholic. And he had something he did with his sons, which is when they would go to a diner or anything, and there might be a, a waitress who maybe wasn't all that attractive and maybe looked a bit wounded. And he would say, Every woman has something precious in her. Let's see if we can see it. Let's see if we can. Yeah. And, and they have to sort of kind of look and you say, yeah, I think, I think I can see it. I think I can see it. Um, and that's what women need to know is that males see that something precious um, in, in women. And it, that young man, it's going to be very hard for him to exploit women. It's going to be very hard. If that's the vision that mm-hmm. he's that his father has given him of women, it's going to be very hard for him to um, in any way uh, exploit um, women. And I mean, it's something that we learned a lot of decades ago, 
but there was still the notion that you should remain a virgin until you got married. And one reason for that was that you could make a, a gift of yourself to your spouse so that sexual intercourse was something you only had between the two of you. And you were never in danger of comparing your spouse to someone else with whom you'd had sex before. Right. And I've heard of people saying, both men and women saying they deeply regret having had sexual intercourse before marriage because different images, different songs, different things bring memories back that they don't want. They don't want it. They know that that just that it dishonors their spouse, um, that I'm thinking about this woman or this man or something that I'd been with before. And I wish I'd never done that because I put something in my memory that I don't want there. I want this person and only this person. There's, there's a, um, Oh, I don't know. I probably can't think of it. Um, yeah, there's some movie that I loved years ago where it, uh, uh, it was a man and a woman who, who were getting married. Jane Fonda was one of the, and one of the buttons uh, were in it. And um, anyway, they were on their honeymoon and um, both of them were inexperienced. And he was especially embarrassed by that. He didn't know that he could perform well or whatever. And so he, he kind of did this all this braggadocio that um, and got drunk and everything because he was so insecure. Um, and she finally figured it out. In fact, I think his best friend uh, made it clear to her that, you know, he talks like he's had a lot of women and he knows what he's doing. But he's he's as pure as can be. All right. And so that at a certain point, they're, you know, getting they're sitting with back to back on the marital bed. And, you know, she says something, you know, the wonderful thing about marriage is we have our whole life to get it right. You know, it was just beautiful. And it's just, it is this thing that, you know, then sex became, is something just between the two of you. It's only ever between the two of you. And, and what consolation that is, you know, we, we, we make this ours. It's ours. It's not pornography. It's not past experience. It's something between the two of us. Yeah, so, Dr. Jenna Smith, one thing that you had mentioned earlier in your in your lesson that you're giving us here on the sense of the sacred is that you said we're sacred, that we were created to be sacred. And I heard you say that. and I was thinking, wow, that if we have a diminishing sense of the sacred, then there's something about us that's just and I thought about what Jesus said when he was he had a whole conversation about taxes, and he has said, "Render unto Caesar what belongs to Caesar, and render unto God what belongs to God." Because we are the imago Dei; we are created in the image of God. So, therefore, we belong to God. We were we belong to the sacred, as you said, and we were created as such. But in the world that we're living in, all this stuff that's going on around the world with normalizing gender confusion, what can, what can you say? How can you put these two things in conversation that we've, we've lost a sense of the sacred because we lost a sense of who we were created to be. And also therefore we we've lost just the, the loss of just human sexuality. And in light of that, what hope do we have that we could recover a sense of the sacred in the church and in the world? Well, excellent question. And, and I love your um, use of that scriptural passage um, that render under Caesar what is Caesar's and render under God what is God's. And I think very much it's important for us to understand we are God's, right? We, aren't, we belong to God. We aren't a God, but we belong to God. Uh, what a difference that would make. 
in every person's, as you said, imago Dei, I'm made in the image and likeness of God. Everything else in the world, when Christ said, render under Caesar what belongs to Caesar, everything else in the world is a, 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 has a utilitarian purpose. Right? John Paul II made this very clear. Everything else is actually meant to be used. And when it stops being useful, we discard it. Right? If it's broken or something, we get rid of it. If it's outdated, we get something new. Right? Whereas human beings are not meant to be used. As he says, we have a, um, we are an end in ourselves. And even when we're useless, we're meant to be um, revered and, and treated as precious. Right. So that my I took care of my mother had dementia for many years and she she was remarkable. But, you know, so she was losing her mind and losing her powers. And but she was so precious. I mean, I, you don't have a sense. She, she always say, I'm a burden. I feel useless. Oh, no. You know, you think about people who take like a baseball that Mickey Mantle hit out of the park. And it sells for a couple million dollars and he puts it in a, in a case in a room and it's Mickey Mantle's baseball. And I said, well, yeah, okay, but there's my mother. She's infinitely more valuable than Mickey Mantle's baseball. Why? Because she's a human being and she has loved and loved and loved and she, 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 she deserves to be loved in return. And she never loses her value. Her value is infinite, all right? And this new little being, we have abortion in our culture because we think people are just like things. We can just throw them away. Um, so this baby in the womb is going to be an inconvenience. Uh, so let's just kill it. And you say, no, if this is a precious son or daughter of God, we're going to band together as a community and do everything we can to make this child's life um, one will, will direct, make it possible for them to come to God. That's the most important thing. And so we don't, um, again, we look upon every person as belonging to God, render unto God what is God's. We all belong to God. And so we have to say, are we living our lives that we're returning the gift that God has given to us? You say gender confusion. You say God has, you can, God cannot put a human being in the wrong body, a human soul in the wrong body, all right? A person, a woman who is is fem a, a baby who is female, and a, and a and a baby who is male, that's the gender that God has given them. All right. Now they may have some confusion. Who knows what family dynamics have have created something for this poor child that makes this child not feel comfortable. Um, well, again, that's something where we need to help them to restore that. I mean, they, they say that I think eighty five percent of young people who have ever had gender confusion pass out of it by the time they get through their teen years, all right? But instead, we take them at almost infancy now, two years old, five-year-olds, and we help them go through some sort of gender change. There's nothing that, there's no permanent decision you would allow any five-year-old to make, all right? Who they're going to marry, what school they're going to, nothing. You don't, you, don't, you don't let your kids make those decisions. And you're going to make that have them make a, a permanent decision for the rest of that they can feel uncomfortable. I mean, kids can feel uncomfortable for all sorts of reasons. I mean, they're unpopular at school. They think they'll be more popular if they're a girl instead of a boy, or they, they have an interest in things that are traditionally male or female, and so they feel like they they aren't really a male or female. There's many many ways of dealing with that uh, that doesn't, doesn't at all require any kind of surgery or hormones or anything. 
I mean, most parents have had, if they've had a number of children, one of them at some point gonna, you're going to want to, you know, sort of say, why well, we're not dressing girls' clothes or whatever. Well, if you wanted to make it, well, we can do, we can do some, we can do some, sorry, we can do some of that. We can, you know, you can, we'll do act a play or something, you know, but that's not who you really are. You're just pretending. We're pretending. You can pretend to be a bear. You can pretend to be a lion. You can pretend to be a girl, but you're not, right? Um, so there, but it, it, a lot of it is not accepting our existence and everything in the world as a gift from God. Instead, we almost feel that life has been, I mean, it's a very negative view. Okay, the huge difference, let me just quickly say the huge difference between the Christian view and the modern view. The Christian view is that life is a gift and that from the very minute you come into existence, you are more or less indebted um, to your parents for bringing you into existence, for people for creating a, a, a certain culture and society, of course, primarily to God. But to those who build the schools and, and hospitals, and by the time you get to be a certain age, there's no way you can pay it all back. I mean, by the time you get to be one years old, there's no way you can pay it all back, all right? You've been given so much. Whereas the modern world thinks of us as, as life has been imposed upon us. I didn't ask to be born. And so when I come into the world, the world owes me because I didn't ask to be born. And it owes me everything. I don't have indebtedness to anybody. And so what I want, I get. And I didn't ask to be a girl, so I could be a boy if I wanted to be. And I didn't this, and I didn't that. I didn't ask to be alive. So if I want to commit suicide, I could commit suicide. And the state should assist me in that. And so if, when you take God out of the picture, again, you no longer see yourself as sacred, beloved son or daughter of God, but you see yourself as a thing and it's a thing that, um, whether you exist or not exist, is a sort of a, a matter of indifference to everybody. You have no um, eternal value. You have no infinite value. You're just as valued as you value yourself as other people value. But you don't have an intrinsic value that is from God. I mean, the word sacred does mean something that's set apart. Right? And again, everything else is utilitarian. Human beings are set apart as being made in the likeness and image of God. Dr. Janice Smith, thank you for this catechesis and this instruction on the return to the sacred. And thank you for putting together this series. Um, people can't hear it enough. And someone's going to be coming along and hear this. They've never heard anything like this. So thank you for giving me this opportunity.